The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarren.com slash rain. What they didn't know, what the helicopter pilots couldn't see, was that there were five people still clinging to the gear. Right underneath the wings, very difficult to see from above. Uh, some of them were up inside the gear well, so there's no way you can do this. And we didn't know until the video came out. It was being live streamed. When we started seeing bodies fall from it. This is how they clear. I watched them clear the room. Came out with their Taliban white robes, so easily identified. And they had these six foot sticks, like staffs, like huge thick staffs. And I just watched them beat and just kept pushing people and pushing people and beating them with these sticks until they finally killed them. And I'm, I'm jet number five, the last one. And I remember taxiing by these guys and all their white robes and they're waving them. They're leaving. But you could just, just sense it, just like knew. This wasn't like a friendly see you later wave. If they knew what the middle finger was, that's what they were doing. Dude, can you give me a quick background of, of who you are, what you're doing, how you got to where you are today, and then we'll we'll jump into it from there. Sure, sure. Real quick, uh, SoCal kid grew up on the beach in, in a place called Oceanside. Also, my high school had surf PE. Um, fun place. Uh, but I was a wrestler in uh, in high school, and I wound up with a wrestling scholarship to Air Force Academy. That's how I wound up in the Air Force, sort of by accident. Didn't know much about the Air Force, especially growing up in a beach town like I was. Um, I credit Top Gun with being a, a big influence to me, but but I was so naive, I had no idea Top Gun was a Navy movie. I thought going to the Air Force Academy was the same thing. Yeah, it's like the best Air Force recruiting video. That's, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And it was Top still Gun right Adams. there in San Diego, in my hometown. So it was, uh, it was super <laughs> popular where where I grew up. I guess one of the at the academy as a as a wrestler there, and then um, after graduation, pilot training, C seventeens, sort of bounced around. Uh, obviously, like we all do, wound up at the Pentagon um, for a stretch. Did a uh, germane to this discussion. Did a did a long eight month deployment to Kabul in uh, 2015, and then after that, get back to the Pentagon. Uh, was selected for command down in Charleston Air Force Base, Charleston, South Carolina. That's uh, where I am now. I took command of the 16th Airless Squadron. Did that for two years. After leaving that job, I became the director of C-17 Special Operations sort of like another command right after that. I did that for two years and then I just retired. Uh, actually, technically I retired one May, 2023. Yeah. The, the terminal leave. It's always nice. Right. The right. special operations. Is that the soul two mission? You got it. Yeah. That's what it is. All right. Can you tell me a little about the soul two mission? What that is for a guy who's sure. You know, it, it's yeah. So, so C-17 soul two stands for special operations, low level two. Uh, it's a little bit of an antiquated name, but the mission set and the, and the folks who've been a part of it, I mean, this goes all the way, this predates the C-17 even, we're talking C-130s and C-141s eventually, originally, with the mission set. It's become like a brand, so we'll never we'll never change the name, Soul 2, we don't really do much of the low-level 2 portion of it these days, it's still a, part, a little bit of part of the mission, but it, it has become such a brand name 
uh, with the with the joint special forces that will never change it. Um, but it's uh, it's only located here at Charleston, um, specialized mission set where we sit uh, alert, you know, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year on a one hour shortfall. So we got guys on a call right now doing that mission to ready to respond, just like the joint force does to whatever crises um, happening across the world. So um, sort of the uh, the the top tier of the flying mission here at Charleston. I'm thinking, you know, we're talking uh, Somali pirates and Captain Phillips and Navy SEALs getting dumped off in the middle of the ocean. That's Soul 2 stuff. Like, that's kind of the... Yeah, without without crossing the line into into the, you know, the classified realm, uh, what I'd say is there's... We take part in a lot of um, operations like that. So yeah. if, if you hear something like that going on the news, there's a chance that C-17s are a part of it. I always say the Captain Phillips because I think it's in the it's in the movie of Navy SEALs jumping out of a C seventeen on the on the way there. But yeah, uh awesome, awesome mission set. And so your time in Kabul in twenty fifteen, you said you did an eight month deployment. I assume that's a non flying deployment. You're doing staff type work. Was that really It was, yeah, yeah. I went over there in a staff job, but but I wound up uh as the aide to General John Campbell, who was the US Force Afghanistan commander. Or Sergeant General John Campbell from the Army um, and the uh, commander of called ISAF at the time, and then the mission changed to RS Commander Resolute Support. So I, did, I was his aide um, for a period of time, and then back. So great, great experience. I was the only Air Force guy on an entire uh, Army Joint Staff, um, but in that role, I, I mean, I had a I logged over 100 sorties as a passenger on Black Hawk helicopters during that deployment, and I visited every single FOB in Afghanistan. It was pretty eye-opening. Um, and, I mean, nobody likes deploying. Of course, nobody likes being away from the family, but it was enjoyable. I liked it. Yeah, different world. And so being the, the aide, to, I mean, essentially you're handling a lot of the, the admin, the day-to-day things for him. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, you're you, – Aids, uh, aid to camp is is the term. Um, you know, we're not decision makers. We are definitely the help, the the personal assistant, almost if you will, carrying a lot yeah. of bags and helping to remember things, run calendars, uh, do a lot of logistics. But it's a lot of learning. I mean, part of the function of an aid camp in all of the military is to get a, an up close personal view of what happens at the higher levels of leadership, right? It's a grooming type of job. So while the tasks often are menial and long hours, uh, the learning opportunity is tremendous. And General Campbell was just a phenomenal leader officer, such a, such an amazing opportunity to learn. What do you think you learned most out of that? And then also, you know, interacting as a singleton air force dude and amongst the army, what were some of the challenges there? Well, the the best part probably, I think, what I brought to the fight was a um, very strong like logistics background. Surprisingly, right, us, us Air Force guys know how to get around. Much yeah. bigger picture view of how things work, transiting everywhere. You know, we, at one point he, you know, he's the he's the commander of everything going on in Afghanistan. So we had to come all the way back to DC. He had to testify before Congress, and so coordinating. Uh, Coordinating all of that types of travel was very easy for me. It was awesome. Uh, they, I know that the the army guys were very appreciative to have an air force pilot helping them <laughs> show the ropes. Yeah, the the biggest challenges, of course, is we we all speak different languages. Um, 
the Army is very much mission focused. And I, I think what the reason that I, that I gelled so well with them is because of that, because they just, uh, you know, if nobody ever asks you about your background, your career, things like that. Like, can you get the job? Done? How well do you do the job? Performance speaks for itself. So that part was awesome. But it is the Army. And there were there were some growing pains. I mean, I I, I worried there for the first couple of weeks on the job that it wasn't going to fit in. I got some uh, a mentor of mine would call it wire brushing uh, to you know <laughs> smooth out the rough edges and and uh, and become part of that team. That that was probably the hardest part was uh, you know joining a different type of family. Yeah, interesting. So, did you want to fly C seventeens out of pilot training? Yeah. Definitely, and we, you know, going to one track, no number one choice for sure. You know, it was amazing. What I really wanted to do was come to Charleston right away. That was my first one. And looking back on it now, we are so grateful that did not happen because we got to finish at Charleston, which, which I can't script that any better. I went to McCord first, which was uh, that went up being amazing. You know, obviously the the friends and the relationships you build there. And um, my first squadron commander out there wound up being. Uh, an 06 wing commander and, and pretty um, critical in my development to becoming a squadron commander much later in life. That was awesome. Opportunity. Flying around C-17, what can you talk to me how that, your career with deployments, how that, what that looked like, just kind of a broad brush? Sure. C-17s, uh, you know, it's changed over the years. It's even just changed most recently with um, the way that we're employing all of our forces in the Air Force. But in general, um, we're a, a global airlifter, right? We do a, a combined strat mission and tactical mission. What makes C-17 so desirable, I think, and so capable is we can hit the long haul stuff right into a short short runway on dirt somewhere in Iraq, right? Take off from here and go all the way there. So we, we spend a lot of time in the States and then we forward deploy uh, probably once every two years to an, to a unit uh, at LUDSR. And that's where we do a lot of our, our forward staging stuff. But it, it, it's unique because you'll be deployed flying missions in and out of Iraq, Afghanistan every day. And the C-17 next to you just came from the States, the Germany over there, and is doing essentially the same mission. So, um, ton of hours, ton of flying, ton of crossing the pond, a uh, ton of traveling, 63 countries, 63 different countries I've been to in my career. So that part's pretty fantastic. And then course the majority of it in Afghanistan. I'm gonna ask you what are some of the most challenging places you've been into, but before I do that, I'm gonna tell everyone my little story of me riding on a C seventeen. Because I rode on a couple of them into and out of country, but they have the passenger seats like sit down the center aisle, so mm -hmm. those palletized ones. And so, you know, everyone can imagine just like riding on an airliner, but these things are no kidding on a flat pallet that get loaded up. And I don't know, maybe it was like 10, 10 rows across, whatever, but the entire time it moved like three inches. So the entire <laughs> flight is just, so if you like fall asleep, you jerk forward and back, you know, these are first world problems, but I guess it's much more comfortable than sitting in like the C-130 in the webbing, the web seats. Uh, I've done that before, less, less enjoyable, but talk to me about some of the challenges when you're going into 63 different countries. Water and also taking a big old heavy plane into these spots. What are some of those unique challenges? Probably the planning stuff. I mean, the, the flying of the jet is um, super fun, right? It's a uh, flies with a stick, um, incredibly capable. 
you know, we, we say, I tell folks all the time, there's no such thing as too fast and there's no such thing as too high in a C-17. We can, we can land from just about anywhere. It is remarkably capable and super fun because of that fly. So the challenges, a lot of challenges come in like the planning aspect. If you're going to 63 different countries, that's a lot of different rules. Every country's got different rules. C-17 is a heavy airplane with a very big wingspan, making sure you can get in and out of the super remote places. You're flying to a base in Africa, and the last time a C-17 went there was two years ago. So, so doing airfield studies on that kind of stuff, right? We have, uh, we've all, all got horror stories in the community of um, folks hitting things on the ground, unfortunately, you know, or, or you land and the asphalt is, is coming up and there's, you know, huge fog damage. I mean, C-17's got four enormous engines. You throw those things in a reverse thrust and it'll suck up everything that's around it. So those, those are probably the hardest, hardest things to overcome that. And, um, you know, working with, Anytime you're working with foreign governments, we get into get clearance issues, things like that. We fly from uh, in and out of countries that we're friends with, but they not be, may not be friends with each other. India and Pakistan, always always a pain flying over in that area. And you very difficult to go from one of those countries to the other. And so working that stuff out was, was always a challenge. And then, of course, uh, getting into some of the more taxable stuff. Um, C-17s do get shot at. I mean, we, we, for all of our tactical stuff, the fact of the matter is it is a big airplane. And when we're landing, we're not going very fast. And it's, uh, and for, for, you know, a five minute period, once you're in the, in the WES and the weapons engagement zone, it's, you're almost a sitting duck, right? Those are, you know, there's only so much you can do with an airplane that size to be tactical. The rest of it is you just, uh, you're just going to take it. Yeah, what's impressive now that I fly big old fat planes around, seeing what a C-17 can do with like a, a, I mean, a tactical approach landing where you're very steep, spiraling down or just very steep uh, maneuvering or climbing out. Like, it's impressive to see that. And there are stories, I don't know, like there's probably a C-17 that's had some pretty significant damage, but I know there's a DHL, the one that was out of Baghdad, they got hit by shoulder fire, um, surface air missile. I mean, those guys spun it around like that's a pretty iconic story. But again, yeah, we, big... we had two C-17s take man pads. Okay. Uh, yeah, it was early on. It was early, early on in Afghanistan, you know, before we, we got enough boots on the ground to sort of eradicate that kind of stuff. But, uh, our, yeah, the biggest issue for us is small arms. Who doesn't own an AK-47 in either of those countries? Right. You know, it seems like everybody does. And, and it, um, yeah, we've all seen RPGs launch at us. We're flying with night vision goggles. And so you'll see an RPG launch. It's a good thing about RPGs, it doesn't track, right? It's like essentially a big flying bullet. And so you may see them, but I don't recall anybody getting hit. But we've had a lot of C-17s take small arms damage as well. Armored, armored cockpit, one or two tragedies have come out of that, but not not anything. Yeah. Flying around in Blackhawks as a passenger a hundred times, that's uh, a little more spicy. I love it. I thought that was great. I thought that was <laughs> Those guys are there. You're talking about real pilots. Helicopter pilots are real pilots. Those guys are amazing. Yeah. I was casual in the 41st Rescue Squadron. That's Combat Search and Rescue, HH60s, um, and still friends with a lot of those guys to this day. But hearing some of their stories, seeing some of those stories in the news, I had Shiner on the podcast who he got a DFC, and you like listen to his story of these guys rescuing a bunch of dudes who needed help. You got a 10 strafing overhead and they're just getting lit up. Um, yeah. Shiner has like an incredible story. I'm like, and I didn't know this too. Like the, 
you know, medevac army helicopters are unarmed. You know, I guess it makes sense right. with and you're like, right. so you can go land in a firefight, big old helicopter, like Taliban doesn't care. They want to shoot you down. So for sure. Spicy. And again, those things are just shaking themselves apart. So you got to be a good pilot to hold it all <laughs> Absolutely. together. Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah. well, hey, I want to pivot and talk um, kind of towards the end of your career here. And then we traverse backwards uh, to the beginning, but integral part, whether you knew it or not in the beginning, but definitely played out that way with the withdrawal from Afghanistan. So can you talk to me leading up to us leaving Afghanistan? What were you doing? What was your, your job at that time? Sure. So the C-17 community was, you know, let's see, August 31st was the deadline. That was the, uh, you know, kinds of end. It flew the last plane out of Afghanistan and we got airborne right at midnight local on Funny side, remind me of that funny side story because that was a coincidence. But leading up to that, in like the three, four, five months prior, C-17s were super busy, closing down base after base after base. We're getting rid of, you know, we're shutting down everything. And we had such a, a large presence over there that that was a very large, long, normal operation, a retrograde. Systematically closing bases, essentially from the outskirts of the country, collapsing into Bagramink. And what we were seeing as we were doing that, you know, uh, we, we would leave a base and leave it in the hands of the ANA, the Afghan National Army. And within days, it was in the hands of the Pentagon, or the, uh, the Taliban. And so we, we saw this coming as we closed the base and collapsed inward. We just were watching the Taliban march inward. And so when we got to the very end of, of uh, Kabul, um, the last base we left open, Base we closed just prior to that was our largest base. That was Bagram Air Base. Bagram is enormous. Is that June and, time frame? Yes, it was July. July first. July first, we closed it. Um, I got to take part in that operation as well. It was a, that was a, a deliberate action operation. And at the time, there were questions: Should we close Bagram because it was? such a strategically important base to us. It was huge, had a huge perimeter, huge runways. We had an enormous military presence there. And knowing what we know now, I, we much rather would have been using the Bagram Air Base run. The decision to close Bagram came basically because of the, of its size. Two significant things going on with Bagram. Enormous perimeter, enormous perimeter. And the Taliban's coming. So we're probably, we would have had the plus up the security at Bagram. We would have had to fly in troops, 2,000 troops, something like that, if we wanted to keep Bagram open. And so that, from like a leadership decision, I understand why they didn't do that. The second significant thing about Bagram is it's got Parwan Prison. Parwan Prison is the largest, it's Gitmo of the Middle East, okay? It is the largest terrorist prison anywhere over there. And arguably worse people in it than Gitmo. And it sits inside sort of up on one side of the base, but inside the gate has its own gates there as well. And so understanding that that there's a lot of people in Parwan that we don't want to be dealing with and that we would have to bring in more troops to secure Bagram, the decision was made to leave Bagram first. Probably probably a good decision, at least an educated decision at the time. Like it wasn't a mistake at the time to close Bagram. But that that did end up in hindsight creating a lot of the problems that happened at Kabul. We went down to one runway. You know, Kabul is a single runway operation. Closed Bagram on July 1st. 
It did not take long for the Taliban to get to Kabul. And in the middle of August, as part of the alert mission we have here in Seoul too, uh, we got alerted, go support. Some stuff happened over there. You know, we had we still had a U.S. embassy in Kabul. Um, in addition to the military presence, State Department diplomatic stuff that that we needed to go assist in. So we launched out of here in the middle of August. And within a day of us taking off out of here, the Taliban had taken the city of Kabul. I woke up, I landed over there. I landed in the Middle East. We took off from here, flew direct, double air refueling all the way over to the theater. We land uh, morning and the president of Afghanistan had left. You remember that? President Ghani had gotten in a plane and abandoned the country. And that's when we knew, all right, that's it. Now in the hands of the Taliban. 24 hours after that, was when the panic and the chaos of Kabul happened. So we, we, United States of America had said, hey, we are going, we are leaving. Kabul is the last place open. We are going to bring out anybody who wants to get out, essentially. Anybody who can prove that, that uh, worked for the United States in some capacity and your families, we will bring you out, knowing that the Taliban would probably murder them if they found out that they were assisting The problem was, you know, I think the the civilian population of Kabul was just it was panic. They heard that we were leaving. I don't think they fully understood that we were we had some time to get them out of there. But I took my small team in there, three C seventeens. We landed in Kabul. And, uh, and surprisingly, we, we actually were bringing in some folks to help bust up security. And as I'm getting ready to leave, somebody comes running out and says, hey, can you take all these people with you? And we said, no problem. Yeah, bring it. And so we, there was a whole bunch of Afghan interpreters, all Afghans, but they all spoke English. You could tell that they, you know, they worked for America and they were leaving. But these folks have cell phones, you know? And so they get on our airplane to leave, and I and I guarantee they're texting people they know in the city of Kabul saying, "Hey, I'm on a C-17. I'm out of here. The Americans are leaving." I mean, that that was that was the moment the panic happened. Everybody rushed the airport. Heard any of the stories? What was going on in the city? It was a mad rush for the airport. And the airport is split. One runway down the middle. On one side is the American airbase. On the other side, it's Kabul International Airport. A lot of security on the American side, almost no security on the international side. I mean, the fence is falling down. You've yeah. seen it, it's like an airplane graveyard over there. So they just rushed through the fence and just um, massed on the airfield. I mean, they went from, from the international side, this sea of people, an enormous amount of them, rushed over the runway and just covered the entire ramp. We had, we had uh, I had just taken off. Just taken off. There's three C-17s on the ground, and they were surrounded. And this is a story of uh, of the one C-17, that famous photo that came with the 830 passengers. They were they were engines running with the ramp down, middle of loading, when all of those people surrounded them, and they just crowded in the airplane. I mean, I mean, Google the picture of 830 people on a C-17. It's incredible to look at. Uh, those pilots face was a pretty tough choice. So I think the, the pilots of the other two aircraft weren't didn't have engines running. And so they did what everybody else did, sort of took shelter in uh, in the buildings that were nearby there. 
because it was mass, it was hysteria and panic and chaos. These guys with engines running couldn't just abandon their C-17. And so they, they made a decision, a pretty courageous decision, I think, um, to close up the doors and get out of Dodge. And they just taxied out and took off. You know, did some quick math, 830 people, average weight, 200 pounds. Okay, we, we can we can handle that much weight. We can take off and they just bolted. It was, and that was nuts. Um, that entire crew earned, earned DFCs. Yeah, here's, here's what I envisioned when I saw that too, is not being a... Uh not coming from that world. Right. But I envisioned it's probably, I mean, maybe it's knowing, tell me, but you know, it's some, it's two pilots in their late twenties, early thirties ish. And you probably have two load masters in the back and this just unravels in front of them. And I'll be honest, the cynic in me, when I saw that, I was like, these guys are going to get Q3, which is, you know, a ding on their check ride or, you know, get, you know, get, uh, not their check ride. Right. But have to go and do another check ride again. Somebody follow, follows you for the rest of your career because I'm like, ah, they loaded up this plane. People don't have seat belts, And that's like the cynic in me. And obviously the, the good part out of this is they got what they deserve, which is distinguished flying crosses. Cause yeah, uh, a heroic. We were all worried about that as well. You're right, man. We all had those same thoughts. You know, we saw it happen. It's interesting. The, the radio call, that they made after they got airborne and were and were headed back to Al-UD, our Al-UD Air Base, our, our main operating base over there. Um, they made a radio call reporting, hey, heads up, we're bringing 800 people back in. And that radio call made the internet before any of the pictures or anything else did. It was crazy. And it, and it hit the internet within hours. It got out there so quickly, it was, it was nuts. Um, and you could hear, you could hear the, Air traffic controller was just incredulous. How, how many? How many people? Do you, it was. It was amazing, and we we all kind of uh, a little bit cynical, I think, too. And like uh, these guys gonna get in trouble, and but they didn't. Not yeah. Not only did they not get in trouble, yeah, they were they were uh, rewarded for making a very difficult but courageous decision. I think. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, That's what they get paid to do, and unfortunately, it's it feels like you know again the cynic and what you hear is like more often times than not in a, what you feel. And I think there's probably some truth to it, a culture of CYA that they could have very, very easily roasted uh, that crew for doing that. But that's yeah. what, that's, that's what it should be. And that's what, um, that's what we get paid for, right? We, yep. we, uh, that's what it should be. That's right. We get, we get paid for exercising judgment. We don't get paid for everything going right all the time. Yeah. Right. I mean, a lot of a lot of pilots say being a pilot's really not that hard. It's not really that hard to fly an airplane, but it's for when everything goes wrong. Pay pay for your experience and judgment and the lessons learned to get to that point. That was a great example. And, you know, and there was more. Fortunately, it got worse after that. Right? You would think that that would be the worst thing that happened, and it, and it wasn't. So, you know, when when all those people came across Rome, we had a, we had an American presence there, obviously. And if you and if you read about what was going on sort of behind the scenes on the ground, not from the flying picture, it was Army and even some Air Force, you know, contingency response folks who were out there, saw that sea of people coming and we we deployed Humvees like a, almost like a skirmish line. We, de- we deployed a perimeter of people out there. I think in some cases, not really knowing any of these folks, just thinking about it. From like a military leader perspective, a command perspective, somebody made a great decision to collapse that line because it became pretty obvious that it was civilian. 
probably a lot of very nervous young people, Americans, young soldiers with guns, yeah. watching that sea of people come out. And that could have been, it could have been one of the darkest times, I think, in American history. Somebody there made the decision to, guys, we're not stopping this. And they collapsed everything and everybody just went and took shelter in buildings and let the civilians sort of, you know, best best decision there, let the civilians come across. The that that the 830, uh, aircraft happened and they didn't get you know it got it got worse after that uh, very interesting i can't think of another uh type of military operation that was filmed live on twitter but this one was right all the afghans had phones they were connected yeah. to the internet and all this stuff came out on twitter and this is all going i i you know i told you i had just taken off uh the crew with 830 packs was maybe two hours behind me. And then about two hours behind that was uh, I just landed, rushed into the, the jock, we call it the Joint Operations Center. And I'm watching this like live now. We got cameras everywhere, right? Got all the all the secret live feeds of everything. And there's a C-17 that is surrounded. And they're also trying. Now, they, they hadn't done any loading. Um, they were trying to download stuff when this happened. They were in a fortunate position where they hadn't shut down engines, they hadn't opened anything, so they nobody else was on board, but their aircraft was surrounded. They were trying to figure out what to do. And so uh, after after talking to some of the folks on the ground, it was decided that they would leave. So they started taxiing out, and the mob, this is the video that went viral, the mob is just running alongside their speed set, just jogging, you know, they're surrounded. They're climbing all over the, the gear, right? There is probably 20 people clinging to the aircraft as it's taxiing and at the same time we're 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 trying to figure out how to disperse this crowd so we brought in a couple army helicopters you can see them in the video flying in really low to try to scare the crowd away they're dropping what we call non-lethals flashbangs things like that to try to get the crowd to disperse and nothing worked they wouldn't they weren't they were not leaving they were they were so desperate to get out of there and so determined that nothing was going to from that C-17. And so... Um, and no one... So no one... No passengers were on that C-17? No. Uh, pa- our U.S. passengers. Right. But no, not folks, like the... They were bringing in. Yeah, they, they never downloaded. But no no evacuees. And just to paint real quick, uh, paint the picture too. So obviously the first one that loaded up, or the second one, I guess, that had the 830 passengers, obviously they're wrong place, wrong time. The doors open and they get bum rushed. Yeah. But this right. crew, I think you mentioned all the crews kind of hunkered down inside of a, of a building. And I imagine that's inside the skirmish line, so somewhat protected. Yeah, well, they, they, for this particular crew, they, they never got out of their – they never shut down engines. So they were, you know, okay. imagine C-17s in various positions. There's one C-17 that its engines are shut down, and, and everybody swarms the airplane so they can leave. You know, you're not going to leave an airplane with its engines running, but this airplane's not starting. So they leave, they get inside a building. Then the, the aircraft with 830 passengers has engines running and the ramp down. Okay. So they get swarmed. And this third airplane has engines running, but none of the doors are open. So nobody can get on board. Now they're just surrounded on the outside. And it's not necessarily one, two, three in that order. There's there's more time that has passed than a few other aircraft involved in that's the gist of it. Yeah, and so, so these folks, uh, and they're, they're also in a really difficult spot. Like, what do they do? They, they don't want to open the doors now. They don't want to shut down their engines and open the doors and get swarmed. So they're sitting there with engines running and 
And there's some coordinating that goes on. These guys are on the radio. Nobody here is making like decisions in a vacuum. You know, we're right. thinking through this problem. Like, what do we do? And hey, let's let's try to taxi and take off. Let's sort of see what happens. And so you see them taxiing, and the mob just follows them. And then they take the active runway. They pull out onto the runway, and the mob surrounds them on the runway. As a matter of fact, somebody brings a an old guy in a wheelchair and parks the wheelchair right in front of the runway. And they sit there for a while, and the helicopters are trying to disperse the crowd, and just nothing is happening. And so they, after waiting it enough time, the wheelchair person gets moved. So they decide you know, a runway is two miles long, right? A normal runway. I don't think people really appreciate how long runways can be. Yeah, 10,000-foot runway out there. That's almost two miles long. So they start taxing really slow, make sure all, you know the people can see the aircraft moving and not going too fast that they're going to hit anybody. Uh, and they just taxi for two miles, and of course, the crowd can't keep up. They can't keep up. The only way the crowd got dispersed was they didn't have the endurance to keep up with the C-17 on its two-mile taxi down the runway. So they get down to the other end, and they turn around, and meanwhile, the mob is parked about halfway down the runway, still on the runway, about halfway down. And they talk to the helicopter pilots, and they do the, the helicopter pilots you know, from what they can see, their airplane's totally clear. And they do a little bit of math. They see, they can see how far down the people very clearly, right? There's runway markings. They look down there. They say, oh, those people are at 6,000 feet. It only takes us about 4,000 feet to rotate. So they decide to take off, make a decision to take off. What they didn't know, what the helicopter pilots couldn't see, was that there were five people still clinging to the, the gear. Right underneath the wings, very difficult to see from above. Uh, some of them were up inside the gear well, so there's no way you could even see. And we didn't know until the video came out. It was being live streamed. Right. When we started seeing bodies fall from the season. So I think three, three bodies fell off right away. Um, and, you know, the craziest thing to me is there's a video of a, of a 20-year-old Afghan national soccer player. And he's, you know, he's just a kid. And he is, the story I read about him later was that he was texting with his family and he was excited. I'm all, I got on one. I'm out of here. Like, I'm going to make it. You know, not having any understanding that even if you can hold on to an airplane going 500 miles an hour, you're going to be at 35,000 feet and freeze or stuff. I mean, it's just, there's right. no surviving that. You know, it was this, it's not a very educated place. So the, the tragedy to me is that you know, kids like him, he thought he made it, right? He thought that this was a good thing, that he was clinging to the outside of his season. Um, and he fell. A couple other people fell. I think two others um, were up under the gear well, and they died in route, essentially. Unfortunately, some graphic and gory videos came out of that as well. Horrible, right? I was like, that was by far the worst day. Some, actually, that was the second day to get to get that. That was the chaos. That's how sort of how it happened. And then now we're we're stuck with like, okay, what do we do? I do want to highlight, um, you know, to bring a little positivity out of that one segment, which again, it's it's horrific. But you know, again, the crew like sitting there and being 
pilots and making a decision, like looking down the runway, like, Hey, that's about 6,000 feet to me. I know again, how big of a deal it is for takeoff and landing distance and just all the minutia that goes into it, but them sitting there and making a decision, um, to launch when they don't have a full picture. It's like, Hey, this is about right. You know, and again, um, like you mentioned, like, I know it's at the forefront, like I, unfortunately I kind of grow up in a culture and I think it's, I mean, my perception from the cargo world, it is typically like hand out a Q3 and then ask questions later, not all the time. Right. But yeah. there are a lot yeah. of those horror stories there. And I imagine and probably at that point when you're getting surrounded, that's probably the last thing. Yeah. You know, I, I will, I'll give credit to our leaders uh, during the entire you know, 16 days or whatever it was for the pool evacuation. Um, credit to our leaders for not doing that, for not second-guessing yeah. the crews, for letting pilots be pilots, for not Monday morning quarterbacking everybody. And and when we did do that, when we did look at do some Monday morning quarterback, it was to prevent it from happening again. It's like, how do we do this better? But but nobody. There was not a single Q3 that came out of any of that. So that part's really good. Um, and this crew, uh, they happen to be good friends of mine, um, younger guys that I commanded, as a matter of fact. Um, they also earned distinguished flying cross. But, but from from the moment they took off until they were actually pinned on the FCs, the Air Force completely failed them. So they had fatalities. Also. They had five fatalities on board. That is a big deal. So they landed and OSI took over. Officers, special investigation, detectives, whatever. You know, mostly, if you ask me, mostly want to be FBI guys. And they're not cool about anything. And they essentially, you know, they didn't confine them, but they ground, they were grounded immediately. They spent a week or something like that, you know, living in a little hooch tent thing at IUD, not flying, getting interviewed 10 times a day feeling like they were criminals, being treated like they were criminals. And then they got flown home. They couldn't even fly themselves home. They got flown home. Obviously, this, this because this came out on Twitter and everything was all over the news, there were multiple news articles. This investigation went on. It went on for a year. A year. That's ridiculous. The way that they found out they were cleared was somebody wrote an article. Nobody in the Air Force picked up the phone and called these guys and said, hey, just let you know the invest nobody. They found out on the internet. On unbelievable to me, unbelievable leadership failure all over the place to let that happen. That is ridiculous. One person I'll give credit to is uh, General Minahan, who's now the AMC commander. He was not the AMC commander during the Kabul evacuation, uh, but he's a he's a warrior at heart kind of guy. I love him. I think he's one of the best generals I've ever come in contact with. And I'm, I'm so happy for the Air Force that he's commanding that now. He fixed it. He fixed it. He heard, I actually had an opportunity to talk to him. And I told him the story uh, about these guys who I'm close to and what was going on in their life. And the fact that, it, and I, I straight told him, boss, you, know, you want to know how these guys found out that they were clear? I said the, I said the internet. And he, it, he hated it. He hurt for them. And so he did. He called them. He actually had, when he pinned on DFCs, he met with their families, um, wives, kids, parents, everything at that ceremony. And he apologized. 
I saw him hug one of the guys. I mean, and then, so he, you know, unfortunately, this was over a year later now that this happened, but at least somebody in the chain of command finally addressed it. The thing about how, you know, I know you thought about this, obviously. I'm thinking, it makes me mad just sitting here thinking about it, that this is like a pretty clear cut, like, oh, I watch Twitter. I see what's going on. These guys are in the wheel well. Like, obviously, this crew, they didn't murder these guys. Correct. So this is a pre- pretty clear cut, like, yeah, you guys are no longer involved. It turns out we need to look at something else over here of like how this actually went down and led to this, right? I, yeah, that's really unfortunate to hear it. I got one buddy who has an OSI story where he was in Korea as a you know young F-16 pilot. At that time, the squadron took a squadron trip to China to go shopping, came back, right? Finishes his tour in Korea, goes to Hill, comes back to Korea. Now this is like four years later redoing a security investigation says he did this. He ended up going through multiple lie detector tests with OSI, all sorts of stuff because they thought he was hiding something. And you're like, you guys, and it eventually left with him just walking out after like an eight hour interrogation. He's like, I'm not an arrest. I'm leaving. You know, he stirs the pot and finally got to the point where, uh, but yeah, where you said like, not all I'm sure, but kind of want to be FBI agents. It's like, they don't get to do anything super exciting. And now right. it's like, Oh, we finally can rake someone over the coals. That's I mean, it's, it's hard to police your own. Like I get that. I appreciate that. Like it yeah. is, they are the cops for us essentially. Right. That's like, but yeah. you know, they're, they're not arresting non air force people. Like this is all they deal with, but yeah. man, it is. Yeah, I agree. It is tough. When uh, you, you hear something like that, that's where you hope that there have been common sense that have been sprinkled in someone very quickly in that process because obviously that investigation is getting briefed to their leadership and be like, Oh yeah, there's actually nothing here. We don't even need to be bothering these guys. Yeah. Um, because it, I mean, I, again, just like, I imagine, I can't even imagine getting out of the plane to do the walk around the post flight, right? Like, like those guys had to deal with that. Some pretty horrific and graphic things now to have that hanging over their head for a year are they going to go oh, to jail yeah and it was yeah and there's some real like ptsd stuff on that i mean yeah, uh, no there just a couple of graphic things that drive that point from what these guys did with this you know climbing up under the gear well they didn't know and so they raised the gear four thousand pounds of hydraulic pressure nothing is going to stop that gear from closing um and a body did get stuck half in, half out. And it could be seen, the body could be seen out the window, the entire length of this flight. And so they knew. Uh, there actually was another body they didn't know. And, you know, they reported what was going on. And so they, they had to do a, a pass over the airfield where they were going to open the gear, expect the body parts to fall out so that we could go on to this for a foreign country. Whatever. Whatever. What a crazy decision somebody had to make along the chain. Like, hey, let's make sure we open the gear over the runway so we can collect the body parts, right? That's somebody who made that decision. Crazy. Yeah. So they had to do that. And, and other body parts fell out, but they didn't. And they landed and there were other body parts. So, yes, this was a graphic, horrible, horrible situation that they went through. And you imagine what they're feeling. Like they, they would not have taken off had they known there were people there. But now they're also dealing with levels of guilt with this kind of stuff, you know? They made the right decision with all of the information they had in in a 
chaotic situation that the world has never seen before. Right? There's nothing like this has ever been seen before and certainly not caught on camera. And having to just deal with all of that all at once, uh, it's been a tough time for that for that crew. You know, everybody deals with everything different. They're back flying. They're all flying now, by the way. They're all still active pilots. Things are back to normal for them. They're great guys, but they're going to carry with that with them for a while. And then for their own team, their own family to treat them the way that they did, just inexplicable. Yeah, man, that's that's infuriating. I hate that for them, but yeah. That's that's where the cynical part comes because you hear stories like that, and unfortunately, they're like it exists. But um, I'm glad they all got DFCs, and yeah, you know, yeah. Hopefully, a, a, that's a little bit of a pat on the back for doing doing some pilot shit. Yeah. Um, you're. Are you done at that point? Is everything over? What? Where are you now? Yeah, that just got started, t- Tom. Yeah, we're just still in the first 24 hours of that happening august 16th or 17th uh, I, I sort of forget the times you know i was flying like days i would fly all hours in the day so i don't i don't even remember when it turned to the next day or not but um we got to work right away we the united states military got to work right away containing that situation so we c-17s got super busy here uh we activated the um army's contingency response Force, right, the 82nd um, Airborne, we flew them in. We did this enormous plus up anyway, right, to create, get some perimeter, get some additional security, bring some order to the chaos there, trying to meet this August 31st deadline. And then we, we, we actually got to, it did get to the point where Kabul was very orderly. And it was a mess everywhere else. I mean, at the, at the end of it, right, there's 124,000 people that came out. Uh, I think C-17s carried over 100,000, 110, 120,000, 275 C-17 flights, basically. Um, so it was it was chaos everywhere. But once we got Kabul, once the 82nd got in there, and the Air Force Contingency Response Wing got in there, they're the they're the combat uh, airport guys. It was very it was very orderly. Like we we got to the point where we would land, and there's some other photos that that have come out of that too, of where it it got very very orderly. We we had settled on a number. C17 normally holds 102 passengers. You can get more than that if you bring in centerline seats, but that's not a common thing. So normal C17 is 102. That one flight had 830. We eventually settled on 450. So we were floor loading everybody. No seats, no seatbelts, but basically we could we could load them up in rows. Everybody would sit Indian style. And putting 450 people on there and then that became kind of orderly um not without its challenges so um this one is not talked about very often uh, we had to create a diagram for how to use the bathroom or how to use the tough toilet it's not a common thing indoor plumbing is not a common thing over there and so 450 people is a packed C-17. I mean, it's packed. It's, you, you know, 830 was packed, but 450 still like It's amazing to me to look at it, like how many, how there's that many people on people. C-17. And there's one bathroom and they don't know how to use it. And it was, um, gosh, you want, you want to talk about like a range of emotions. Okay. You land in there and we're like, we're like doing this routinely. This is, you know, this isn't even my mission yet. This is just, uh, 
every time a C-17 lands, it brings people out. So I'm doing my own mission, but every we're like, hey, we have an empty C-17, you know, fill it up kind of thing. And so you see this, all these people load up, and, and what struck me was how many young families there were, how many little kids, like under 10 years old, five years old, like a t- just a ton of kids. And like, you just feel great about it, right? You feel like you're doing this awesome thing. You, I would watch them come on board and and they would sit down and the little kids would just pass out in like relief like i don't know what they've been going through what it took to get to the airport but you could just see the tension leave them and they just put freaking pass out and you felt awesome about it and then you take off and like two or three hours later it's the most disgusting unsanitary environment you've ever been a part of and you have a real hard time not being disgusted it got so bad that it, it was causing a problem, we'd have to hose, hose down the C-17s. We would land and the people would leave and we'd have to like sanitize the C-17 somehow. And it was taking forever to do that. It was like delaying us. So somebody got this idea to fly in from the States, like all this industrial plastic. And so we would take off from LUD, three-hour flight to get to Kabul. And before we picked everybody up, we would line the entire C-17 compartment, cargo compartment, with plastic. And then when that way, when we got off, we would pull the plastic down, and it would just get hosed off, and we could bring more plastic, put the plastic on it. And we talked about that, about these, like, little things that, like, who whoever would have guessed that you needed a diagram for how to use equipment? But, and that's the kind of stuff that we're dealing with, you know? And other other crazy things, too, on, on one flight, Everybody can picture, I'm sure anybody listening to this can picture an aircraft lattice. I don't care what airplane you're on, they're all relatively similar. One each. One, that's right. One and one for 450 people is tough. And then at one point, uh, you know, a young Afghan woman goes in there, she's in there for a while, and there's some sort of like commotion. One of the loadmasters goes down there, he won't come out. Now, at this point, nobody speaks English either. You're lucky if you have one or two people. It's the first thing you do, they board up. We'd asked, does anybody here speak English? And that became our interpreter for the flight. We found out this lady was in labor. She gave birth in a C-17 bathroom on her way from Kabul to Qatar. Pretty, pretty, pretty. pretty. Nice. So all, these are all the crazy things nice. that, are like, that are like going on when, you know, when you're dealing with it. Awesome side note to that story. That family named their baby Reach, which was the call uh-huh. sign of the C-17. So that, that's that, what is that is great. Gosh, can you? I mean, I can't even. Yeah, I can't even fathom this. Yeah, man, that's crazy. That's crazy. And then you know, unfortunately, the um, those people all got to go somewhere. One hundred twenty thousand people got to go somewhere. And the State Department had decided, well, they're not coming to the United States until we vet them, right? We're going to vet these people first uh, because, yeah, who knows? They could be bad actors. And the processing facility became IUD Air Base Qatar, which is also where all of the pilots are living at the time. So many of us, many people got evicted. I mean, it was, you know, Kabul was up in the mountains of Kabul, of uh, Afghanistan. Actually, you know, take away the fact that you're in Kabul, Afghanistan. It is a very pretty place, surrounded by mountains on three sides. Middle of the summer, so it's 75 degrees and sunny every day. It's fantastic. IUD Air Base Qatar is not that way. 120 degrees, real temperature, humidity. It is the desert. It is blinding white. 
sand, so bright that you have to wear, so you cannot open your eyes, not an exaggeration, so bright you cannot open your eyes. And we're landing with all these people on board and the, the backlog, they, they couldn't handle it. IUD could not handle that many people coming in and processing. So if, if you ask me, like the, the most frustrating part for us was he would land, we had, you know, the worst, worst distant happen to me, I think ours was two or three or four hours, but six hours. The crew landed, 450 people on board, 120 degrees outside. We all know airplanes, air conditioning don't work on the ground. Six hours they waited to declaim their passengers. And unfortunately, like you're, you know, talking about the range of emotions, you're happy with these people, you're excited that you're doing something good for these young families. Then, like three hours later, you're kind of disgusted by the sanitary issues and then you land and now it's been hours on the ground and everybody's frustrated the crew's frustrated these people are frustrated you would be too like i have sympathy for them anytime we're trapped on an airplane on the ground for an hour when you're flying you know on america or whatever it's frustrating well it's like six hours and it's a million degrees outside it was it got unfortunately there was some violence and medical emergency you know people passing out I don't think anybody died. We got really close. We got really close to having people die um, in the area that's supposed to be safe. You know, it was, we did a very poor job at IUD. So, so. Now, I mean, there's some limitations because I went through IUD for just three weeks doing an LNO stint, the liaison when I was deployed. I remember talking to the tanker crews. They were going in and out every single day and they were having to clear customs, even though you're on a U.S base right you're in a, another nation's like we don't have to deal with that most military bases right. that are in other nations but they were still on the clear customs so the qataris did add a layer of bureaucracy and i imagine too they're probably concerned about yeah we, 100 plus thousand records. you're right about that. that processing factor? customs at IUD is the absolute worst i mean you'd, you'd be deployed there yeah. deployed there living there right I'm living there, and you have to process customs in and out every time you go fly, like on a daily basis. It was really frustrating. And if you look funny at them, <laughs> or if you, I heard of guys like who like laughed in line, and the Qataris thought they were making yeah. fun of them, and then the those stories are all true, and you get expelled, you get blackballed, you know, you, that and that, yeah. yeah, yeah, very particular. In in this case, we did work it out with the Qataris. Okay, we did not process customs during the evacuation after the first few days. What we worked out with them was something like, I don't know all the details behind it, but a, we set up a, an interim processing facility at a hangar. So as long as people were staying in this general area, there was no customs. Okay? And they, we, uh, we eventually built a city out there. So there's a ton of folks at IUD Air Base. The folks who weren't going forward um, literally built a tent city. And we surrounded it with barbed wire. I actually have pictures of this. It's actually it's one, of the, one of the things that I liked to see. Uh, the MWR, the morale folks out at IUD. Um, I took a picture of this. It is a barbed wire fence. Looks like a refugee camp, essentially, or maybe a prison. It's where all the evacuees are, but they had they had put up three enormous bounce houses for the kids. And so it's the middle of the day, and it is a million degrees outside. I don't know how the kids were doing it, but the place was packed, and I heard laughter. It was like such a cool thing to see, but that, that's sort of what we built out there, um, which is good. But we did struggle mightily in 
in uh, processing the password. It was a great frustration to me. I talked to some of the leadership at, the, at IED at the time because it was causing massive delays. Here's the bottom line. The delays, you know, waiting for six hours after you've landed from a 20-hour day is brutal. Right? You've already been flying all day. You just dealt with everything you dealt with in Kabul, and now you land and it's going to take six hours. Like, it is very mentally taxing on people. And yeah, so, he, yeah. so here's what is the great impact of that? Well, it, that eventually impacts the mission. That increases risk to the mission for something bad happening on the mission. We're getting less. We're already getting less sleep because who knows where we're sleeping. It's already a million degrees outside. And now we're, we're dealing with this at all. Like you are literally like this is the safe place and the safe place is making it riskier to do our jobs. That was my, my biggest piece. So I went and talked to some of the leadership. I happen to have a friend there. And my, my greatest frustration with it was what they told me was, uh, well, the State Department's not letting us process these passports. He threw a number out of me. He said, we are, um, said 12,000 people came in today and only 800 left. So that is a massive problem. I understand. However, Alunid Air Base is 30 minutes from Doha. Doha just hosted the World Cup. And this isn't, this isn't third world country business anymore. You know, there are many things we could have done. We could have purchased bathrooms, tents, air conditioning units, whatever it took to process these people. Was, we, we, I frankly, we failed at LUD. Where do you think that failure came from? Do you think it was the State Department? Do you think I, it was? I think it was Air Force, Air Force leadership. 100% Air Force leadership, specifically the base commander. I'm going to put it on the base commander, um, the general officer. Uh, you know, there's, a, I, I think, a, a principle of leadership that I would call understand your AOR. Understand your area of responsibility. Is a one-star general at LUD Air Base ever going to win a fight with the State Department? No. The military is not going to win a fight with the State Department. Quit fighting that battle. Now, what what can you do? All right, we're, we have... 12,000 people coming into the space a day, less than a thousand leaving. How do we solve this problem? They never, they never did that. That was never addressed. You know, I heard, well, we don't have enough air conditioning units. We don't have enough bus drivers. We ran out of fuel trucks. You know, it got to the point where we would try to leave to go to, go to Kabul and it would take us two hours. We'd be, every takeoff was delayed two hours. Every single month we didn't have enough fuel trucks. Well, if every C-17 in America was over in the Middle East flying in this, where, what are all the fuel trucks and the fuel truck drivers doing at home? Get them over there, yeah. you know, fly them over on a C-17. Let's do it. Let's like, let's get the logistic might of the United States of America involved in this. And we never did. And the thing, you know, I'll give credit or at least, um, they say, Hey, you know what? Sometimes, you know, there's always, you're competing for resources and there's limited resources, but in this scenario, in this event, there was nothing more of focus for the entire United States and the world at that time period. So I feel like if you asked and said, I need X, Y, and Z in order to make this happen, X, Y, and Z would have shown up, you know, the might of the United States Without a doubt. would, would have supported whatever this needed, whatever was needed to make the mission happen yeah. in this case, because without a doubt. So, I don't, and I don't know if it was the, you know, the, the commander thought, hey, if if I have to ask for these things, it's an indication that I'm failing. If I ask for help, that shows that I can't do it. I don't know if it was that type of bad decision making, or if it was, 
you know, an oversight. I hope not at that level that you wouldn't have that type of oversight or just a misunderstanding of what was in the realm of possibilities. So I, I, I suggested, suggested this, and this is to the deputy base command, the vice command. Hey, I'm from Charleston. I call my wing commander right now. You know what we need over here? I said, we need crew buses and we need drivers. They will bring all of them from Charleston because I know, because we were empty here. Charleston was empty. We had sent everybody forward. And he said, there's no way, there's no way they're going to fly a bus over here from Charleston. And I said, what? Yes, we will. What do you mean? No, there's no way. Yes, we will. You know, so was, out, of, out of curiosity, base commander was the pilot background yeah. or. So then again, to give credit, like no one has ever dealt with an influx of 120,000 refugees, uh, probably in the United States yeah. Air Force and ever. So there's definitely been a lot of learning curves. But it's one of those things that you're encouraged, right? Thinking outside the box, like, I mean, it's like basic, you know, when you do like your second lieutenant ASBC and then SOS, like here's a problem and it's a, you don't have all the tools to do it. How do you think outside the box? So right. You know what he needed to do? To make it happen. I would like to have seen him do that he never did. And I also suggested this. I mean, I'm talking like directly to the leadership. It was one of the things that was most frustrating. Uh, I said, he needs to get on a C-17 and fly one of these missions with us. Get on. Come with me. I will fly you to Kabul and back, and you can experience exactly what's happening and give you some perspective on maybe where you need to focus some of your efforts. Never did. Never did. And not to say, I'm not discounting at all the enormity of the challenge that they had. They did have to process 100,000 evacuees from Afghanistan. and and try to somehow identify if any of them were terrorists. I mean, that's really, really hard thing to do. These people don't show up with any, no ID, they don't have IDs on them, right? nothing. They literally have the clothes on their back. And right. so it is an enormous problem. I'm not discounting that at all. However, for the United States of America, we should not have logistics problems. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I guess is the thing is if I was in that position, like I wouldn't, yeah, you know, like, or, hey, I've never dealt with 100,000 people in processing them. But if my pilots, can't get off the plane for six hours or there's not enough buses or fuel trucks that is the comfort zone and falling back to your circle like okay i can solve those problems and i'll do whatever it takes to solve those problems at least yeah. that's how i would and then like all right figure everything else as you go so it's frustrating to hear that yeah, 100%. and you know for you know this is we're now like halfway through it we did put together it, it did get pretty routine at some point never easy never easy this was always the backlog at the deed was the worst. It was horrible. I mean, everybody, one of the great things I saw was every person at IUD lifting a hand to do something. So I was uh, living with uh, the tanker pilot, the tanker squatter, basically they're about tanker squatter. And they weren't employed. They were flying a couple of lines a day. And their commander, great guy, uh, he asked for volunteers from his unit, but they all volunteered to go build tents. JC-135 aircrew squadron out building tents for evacuees. I saw army guys doing the same. Are you a passionate aviation enthusiast? Then you'll be thrilled to hear about our sponsor, Air Corps Aviation. This exciting company has been revolutionizing the aviation industry since 2008, and they have some amazing career opportunities available. More about that in just a minute. Air Corps Aviation is at the forefront of airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating all the way back to World War II. Their dedicated team is involved in various aspects of aerospace, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support using state-of-the-art technology. 
Their exceptional expertise in core manufacturing capabilities like metal forming, CNC machining, and complete aircraft rebuilding has led to the restoration of some award-winning aircraft, such as a couple P-51s, such as P-51 Thunderbird, Twilight Tier, and Sierra Su-2. And if you've been following me for a while, you might remember I was fortunate enough to fly over the Super Bowl in 2018 in Minneapolis. The formation was led by Sierra Su-2 alongside two A-10s and myself in the F-16. So this is a very cool full circle experience. These incredible achievements have captured the attention of aircraft owners, aviation enthusiasts, and the general public alike. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation, then AirCorps Aviation is the perfect place for you. They are rapidly expanding their team in 2024 and have job openings in departments such as engineering and CAD, quality assurance, fabrication, and restoration. This is your chance to turn a passion into profession. AirCorps Aviation is offering some amazing benefits for full-time positions, including health insurance, PTO, HSA, retirement plans, life insurance, and the extra perk of enjoying Fridays off. If you're ready to be part of a team dedicated to fulfilling the dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircorpsaviation.com backslash careers today and take the first step towards an exciting career in aviation. Again, that's aircorpsaviation.com backslash careers. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity. It was fantastic to watch just everybody. How can we get involved in helping some way? That part was pretty fantastic. So I, I mentioned a minute ago that that the you know we're dealing with that at the D. The calmest place was Kabul. Let me tell you how how Kabul got that way. I watched this happen with my own eyes as well. How do you get? Thousands and thousands and thousands of people to clear the runway, right? They're not they're not listening to helicopters and flashbangs and army guys with rifles. They're just straight ignoring everybody. We're not going to resort to violence. We don't do that. United States of America, we don't do that. We didn't have a riot police out there. We enlisted the help of the Taliban, and this is how they clear. I watched them clear the runway. Came out with their Taliban white robes, so easily identifiable. And they had these six foot sticks, like staffs, like huge, thick staffs. And I just watched them beat people with these sticks and heard them, right? They came out in a skirmish line, like a riot for me, except their terrifying white robes, and just kept pushing people and pushing people and beating them with these sticks until they finally cleared them. And then the Taliban, we had, uh, you know, we were communicating with them. We had aligned interests, certainly not working with them. I would never say that. But aligned interests, they wanted us gone and we wanted to be gone. And so in this mutual interest, they maintain, helped maintain. They had an outer perimeter. We had the inner perimeter. Um, that was it. That was how we got that runway clear. I think we never... It'd still be crawling with people right now if it wasn't for something like that. God. I don't really. That is insane. I don't know how I feel about that. Either. You know, I, I don't know how talking? I feel about that either because I, I, don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I, it was horrible to watch. Yeah, man, tough. The struggle I had. I mean, I'm watching this from eight thousand miles away, right? Uh, but I remember listening to one briefing from a four star talking about cooperating with the Taliban. And you know, it's like every grain of your being, like the whole reason 
my first flight, September 10th, 2001, right? Like that was a catalyst the next day for me to go join and serve. And you want to get back at the people who, who did all this, the Taliban facilitated the environment for that to grow. And then all you want to do is get into the fight and, and, and make it right. And then fast forward 20 years later, like, as you mentioned, there are a line interests of, we, we want to leave and they want us to leave. Um, I think a lot of people struggle with that. I know I'm like, I do too. I mean, and yeah, we see him out there. We, yeah, we, we and, yeah, him. You're, you're, and like, you also know what's happening now to, Oh yeah. And we, and we knew it then too. I mean, you know what? We started getting word that, uh, we basically said, if anybody has, if you have any documentation that shows anything about United States, but I don't know. It's like the whole thing. Like, how did you get through the lines of the U S you had to prove something, right? We weren't just letting anybody through that. But I've heard even people with proper documentation couldn't get through that Taliban perimeter, right? They would get through them first. And that, that, that really, like, became a challenge for them. Um, and I did. I walked through. So we get through about halfway halfway through this evacuation, and we start thinking about the end game, right? How, how are we going to leave? Like, the final things. Like, how are we going to leave? Yeah, what's, and we started talking about, yeah, something called a, a JTE, a Joint Tactical Expel. And this is essentially, um, it's a way to collapse a perimeter safely and quickly, basically. It's like a reverse sneak attack, essentially. Like we got these army guys on the walls, right, doing perimeter security. They're watching all of our backs while we're flying airplanes. Who's, who's watching their backs? The, yeah, they have to get on the plane. Because correct me if I'm wrong, Bagram, it was like pop ninja smoke middle of the night. Like, because it made the news that, the ANA, the Afghans didn't know we were leaving. Yeah. I'm sure yeah. maybe, I don't know, maybe, but it was just like, Hey, one day they're there. And then it's that type of exit where, Hey, we're going. I, re- I read a news article. It's pretty great. It's basically like, uh, we left and we made a phone call to the ANA commander and said, Hey, by the way, we're gone. The keys are under the mat. Good luck. I mean, that's right. I mean, is that how it actually went? I mean, roughly went down like, dude, we're out of here. Like, yeah. I'll see you tomorrow morning for coffee and then yeah. never show up. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it sounds like the Bagram one was effective too, because um, they didn't know. Nobody knew, you know, we didn't tell them. The yeah. problem with Kabul is we told them exactly what was happening. This was like the source of the chaos. Okay? This was the poor political decision that led to that. All of this that created all of the chaos and all of the pressure in Kabul was telling them when we were leaving. We know this is military guys. We'll tell the bad guys what your plan is. It, one of the most frustrating days for me was I, we land after one of these missions, you know, all the normal frustrations that I just talked about. It's horrible. It's two o'clock in the morning. We're in the chow hall with the crew, you know, having, having midnight breakfast or whatever it is. Uh, and the news is on TV in the chow hall, the Al Jazeera station, and it's a Taliban spokesman. And it's probably like around the 20th of August or something like that, or maybe later. And we'd said August 31st, but it's not looking good for us. Like, there's still a a ton of people that we have to get out. And you you just do the math. Like, all right, we're putting 450 people on board. How many C-17s do we have enough? Can we do it? And it's not looking good. And the Taliban spokesman says, uh, August 31st is a line in the sand. United States of America will be gone. August 31st. And I, I remember like looking at my crew and saying, the Taliban terrorists do not tell the United States of America what to do. 
I better wake up in the morning and see my president on TV. Telling that guy to go back to his cave. We'll be done when we're done. And actually, if you ask me, yep. very politically easy answer to this. And the answer is, the president comes on TV and he says, hey, I'll be clear here. August 31st is our goal. We do want to be gone by August 31st. But make no mistake, we will be here until we're finished. Don't start shit with us, Taliban. Don't start stuff yeah. up again that you know you can't finish. You've been hiding for 20 years because you did that last time. Leave us alone. You know what I mean? Yeah. Simple. No, instead, Very simple. I did see the president come on TV the next day. And he said, we agree. America will be gone by August 31st. It was horrible. And what that message to us who were there was, oh, not only is this not going to get any better, it's probably going to get worse. This problem is probably going to get worse. Not only have we told the enemy that we're leaving, what our plans are exactly, but but we've also messaged to the population that there's an end date. And if you don't get on an airplane by then, you know, tough luck. So what do you think that did to them? What do you think that did to the population? It made it, it made it crazy. Induced the panic even more. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, on August 26th was the worst day. Well, before I get to that, I'll tell you, I, I around this time we started planning for this PT joint tax will How are we going to, how are we going to get everybody Americans out of it? Right. We've done, we're done with the evacuation and now we need to evacuate all of the Americans, the military, the troops safely because eventually we have to abandon our guard towers and turn it over to the Taliban. And we don't, I know we're cooperating with them, but we don't trust them. And ISIS is there. So, so that's what the whole point of the Joint Tactical Expo was. And that's what I was named mission commander of. I was named the air mission commander. So the commander of the air forces as part of this Joint Tactical Expo. The ground force commander was the 82nd Airborne Division commander, Major General Donahue. Um, also phenomenal man, uh, warrior leader, love that guy. So I spent a lot of time, I would fly these missions with my crews, and then, then the next day, crew gets a day off, I would just jump on a C-17 and fly up there and do planning with the Army. And so I, as opposed to being a pilot where you land and you spend all the time in the military ramp doing your loading procedures and you take off, I would land, get off C-17, jump in a vehicle, go inside the, the little gate where we're doing the planning, meet up with the, the Army guys there, and then the end of the day or whenever we're done planning, try to catch a ride home. So one of the things that struck me as walking through there is what the base looked like. And it had become a refugee city. So even for the people that we had vetted who had made it in, right, they made it. We were going to let them go, uh, get on a C-17 and come home. They still had to wait somewhere for us to actually get on the C-17. So this entire base looked like the largest homeless city you've ever seen. It was families literally laying on cardboard boxes on the sidewalk. Like I'm walking down the street to get to the planning facility and I'm, you know, dodging and weaving all these. It looks like they look like homeless families, you know, waiting, waiting to get out of there. And it was crazy. And then just outside the gate was still the chaos and the hysteria going on of all the people trying to get out, desperate to get out. And that's sort of what led to the August 26th incident, where we had thousands of people crowded into the gate, um, known as the Abbey Gate, on, on the road there. And that was when the ISIS terrorist, we now know as ISIS, um, detonated suicide vest. And, and uh, in that super tight, crowded area, 200 Afghans, 200, 200 Afghans were killed. 
13 Americans were killed that day, and then obviously hundreds more wounded. That, that to me was by far the worst day. We were four days from being finished, from being out of Afghanistan, hopefully forever. And, and we had that tragedy. And that was, that was a tough, tough day for everybody. Um, and I don't want to say, I'm not going to second guess whether it could have been preventable or not for dealing with ISIS terrorists, you know, yep. to use logic and common sense and stuff like that. But it certainly wasn't help that we had that mattress. I wonder if we didn't have an end date, you know, if we could have, I don't know. You'd- yeah, you definitely induce chaos um, when you say when you, when you draw a line in the sand and agree upon it, and the populace that's everyone's trying to get out of there and they're worried about what's going to happen. Um, you induce you induce more chaos, I think. Uh, Carl Miller, good buddy of mine, he was C seventeen Bubba, and then T sixes and Cessna two hundred sixes. I had him on the podcast last year. He ended up he was en route to go do staff or go to school. Uh, in DC when this kind of all started and then he's using social media and WhatsApp to kind of build the network and get people out of Afghanistan. Like a lot of, there were several veteran groups that kind of did that like ad hoc. Yeah. And one of the stories he tells is it's an Afghan air force colonel who is up in Majur Sharif up in the North and makes his way down to Kabul. And it's in the chaos. And I think it's like, like the 25th. And he's talking to this Afghan colonel on the phone and somehow this Afghan convinces one of these young Marines. And to this day, Carl's like, I don't know if he was one that was killed in this attack or not, but this Afghan, if you imagine in my mind, you know, you, you got these just mass hysteria and he convinces this Marine to take his phone and Carl talks to him like, Hey, you don't know who I am, but you know, I'm Lieutenant Colonel. So-and-so you don't owe me anything. But this gentleman that just handed you the phone, like he has done great things for our nation and our security and as a friend, if you'd help him get through. Because as you mentioned before, like, all right, the Taliban's now in the mix. They're not letting people through. He sent me a picture and I don't think it was this is, it wasn't this particular individual, but one, another person he was helping Wilborough in his yard, burning all of his flight records, anything that had any association to the United States. So for those listening or watching just like putting yourself in that chaotic scenario where one, like just trying to get from point A to point B and then that point B is getting to the gate and then trying to get yourself through that gate, through the Taliban, through the vetting process of the United States. And you've had to burn everything or leave everything behind. It's, it's wild. Um, It's unimaginable for me to, I, I, think I had an opportunity it. not long ago to meet uh, an Afghan woman who made it out, and her her story is pretty remarkable too. She she was air traffic control. She actually worked in the tower at Kabul International Airport. Speaks English very well, um, and she was faced with it when the Taliban when the Taliban hit the city of Kabul. They cut everybody off. They basically surrounded the airport right away. They knew, right? They, they wanted to hold accountable the people who were supporting Americans. So they, they cut off all access to it until we started supporting. And so she was trapped inside the perimeter. And so she, she was convinced by some folks she worked with to come across runway, you know, get on a C-17 and, and get out of there. 
But in her story, she she said she was hiding for two days inside the tower from the Taliban as they were searching. She never got to see her family again. Could not make it back home. Her home, her family was on the other side of the line of Taliban. And she was trapped on the inside. And other than talking to her mom on the phone, and to this day, has never seen her mom again. Some of the things that these people were doing, real crazy. I mean, it was hard for us, but it was, in most cases, it wasn't life and death like that. I mean, it's pretty, yeah. pretty nuts scenario. And I give a lot of credit to the U.S. organizations that are still involved with it to get people out. There's essentially like an underground railroad going on. I met a guy, I gave a talk at Tufts University up in Boston. And I met a young Afghani there who was in grad school. Uh, and he had he had family over there. And he was worried because he was in school in America. And if they, you know, Taliban found out. He was able to coordinate with uh, one of these U.S. agencies to smuggle his family out through Pakistan on the ground. They did not get out on the flight, but thankfully they were able to get out another way. And that's still going on. You know, there's still people trying to get out of Afghanistan. And we left behind a lot of people. We didn't leave behind any Americans. Like, I'll put that to bed right now. We didn't leave behind any Americans. I know this for a fact. Many Americans stayed, but we did not leave them. And when we say Americans, what we're really talking about is Afghan Americans. And these are people who are given the opportunity to leave but chose not to abandon their family. And many of them lived in remote places of Afghanistan, like not in here. So um, I, I don't think, to my knowledge, and I was and I was knowledgeable of this, we didn't leave any Americans. There were some there that, that chose to stay. Chose. But we left many Afghans behind who should have got out. Because we we had an arbitrary date of August 31st of getting out. That's why. The only reason the suicide bomb when that went off what what did that change did it obviously it had impact operations it obviously probably ramped up the the stress level what what changed with the environment then yeah i think just the stress level probably not nothing from from the operation because it had happened outside the gate you know at the gate essentially so um you're hearing it seeing the smoke and um C-17s were obviously involved in evacuating all the wounded and unfortunately the 13 Americans that were killed. Um, when that happens, something like that happens, uh, our medevac mission, C-17s do a medevac mission, uh, that becomes the number one priority. Whatever you got going on, you kick everything off your airplane and that becomes your priority. And so that, that, did, that happened immediately to anybody who was there, essentially any C-17. In addition to, you know, flying in some additional medical care, but um, it didn't change anything going on with the evacuation, C-17 evacuation operation, other than maybe a pretty stark reminder of the seriousness of the business. Um, our intel obviously got pretty heavily involved there. We started looking and finding and, you know, talking more with the Taliban. Um, there was a pretty negative thing that came out of that, if you remember. We, we started... I don't want to say started. I'm sure we were doing it before, but we developed some intel that there was another potential uh, ISIS bomb maker or suicide attack coming. And okay, we developed this intel. We tracked it and tracked it and tracked it for a while. I eventually got to the point where 
decision makers felt confident enough in their intel and we launched the Hellfire at this vehicle and it turned out to not be a parent matter of fact so a father and a bunch of his kids that that made the news you know this was yep I hate to say that more negativity came out of that but that was probably a little bit of like heightened like we just had been attacked now we're a little more on edge and seems like we made a mistake, you know, pretty big mistake. Yeah. Um, for me, the, the worst part was thing that one of my one of my personal difficult experiences. The very next day after the bombing, after the bombing, I'm in Kabul, it's in Kabul on the day of the bombing, flying, and I'm in the Kabul the very next day doing the planning for the JPD, and I'm in the planning cell and Intel. Intel breaks that there's two potential suicide bombers that made it over the fence, snuck their way in. Some either they saw them or they're picked up on camera or something. These guys are now inside the perimeter. And so it's like essentially a bolo, right? For the entire base to find these people. And some hours go by and it's time for me to leave. And so I just, you know, the way when I was up there for planning days, the way that I would get home back, back to IUD was I just literally walk out on the ramp, get, you know, Buddy of mine would drive me out there and I'd knock on the door for C-17. Hey, where are you guys going? Are you going to the deed? All right, I'm coming with you. I need a ride. And so I do this, I jump on board and then, and we're, you know, we just loaded everybody. And then I get the call that they've located the two unknown actors. And they're on this airplane. They're on my airplane. And so that's, that's pretty tense situation. So. We're not, we're not going to take off now. We're going to download these people. And we're going to search them all. We bring the bring some army guys out. We start the process of downloading these passengers. And I, I just have this thought. I'm like, well, if the guy's here, he's going to know the jig is up. He's not going to be like, oh, you got me. Like, he's going to push the button like any second. I'm standing there miss all these people. And I'm like, this, any second, you know. And I, I, I was Jeez. coherent enough in my thinking to think of my family. So I pulled out my cell phone and texted them. What I thought could be, you know, the last, the last text I ever sent them. I don't want to freak them out and say anything. I don't want to freak them out. So I just said, "Hey guys, well, we have a family group chat." So I texted the group chat. I said, "Hey guys, I love them so much," and then put my phone away, and then just. Uh, yeah, and, just waited. and so we we found the guys and got them off. Um, they weren't got them off the airplane. Uh, they weren't suicide bombers, obviously. I'm right. I'm right, I'm right here. Yeah, it worked out. It, it worked out just fine. It worked out just fine. But yeah, then for like the next three hours on that flight, being like, "What we found the right guys?" You know, like, that was like the longest three-hour flight of my life, and it's you know just thinking about like. Yeah, I did a lot of praying on that. Like a lot of, a lot of, uh, usually like think about like everything, you know, like, all right, it's completely out of my control. There's like nothing I can do with it. It's either, it's either going to happen or it's not. And so let's not worry about it. So I didn't worry. I wasn't worried about it, but it makes you think about like a, a lot of interesting things, you know? Yeah. And then that was over and I went to bed and like two days later, we, we launched the final mission to go in there. The final mission was great. It was, um, I love stuff like that. It's what we train for. It's like what I, what, um, 
what my job really was. You know, it was great being part of the evacuation. We, my team went in and out of Kabul more than any other C-17 pilots, period. We flew more missions than anybody else uh, because we had additional duties that we were doing as part of this whole team stuff that was happening. Um, and then, uh, and then even when I wasn't flying, the fact that I was up there all the time was we spent a lot of time like involved from beginning, from, from the very beginning to the very end, like our team was a great perspective, I think, a unique perspective relative to a lot of folks for that to be able to see it through from beginning to end. Um, and the, the final mission was great. It was a, uh, a five ship of C-17s. And we flew in one formation, sort of like a reverse sneak attack. Uh, we come in there, landing one after another rapidly. Um, lights out. They turn off the lights of the runway. And we pre-plan this. We all go to a different place. We land and immediately taxi to a different place of the, of the, on the airfield to where the army is sort of um, gathering their troops. You know, at a given signal, once we land, they sort of collapse their perimeters and into a rally point. And from those rally points, we load the C-17s and get out. That's sort of the gist. I didn't go that smoothly, obviously. And in addition to us, the five C-17s that were um, the primary mission, we brought three C-17s with me back up. Each one of them had different roles. I had an empty C-17, just in case I needed more cargo space for one reason or another. Or somebody broke. I mean, if, if the C-17 broke, we were going to abandon it. We had plans, actually, to drop a bomb on a C-17 if we had to leave it behind. I was going to ask if one got stuck there, were you going to, yeah, destroy yeah, it? Somewhere? Yeah. I mean, the Air Force guys, Air Force, you know, you imagine planning this thing. So we're, we're in the MPC, the mission planning cell at the chaos at IUD, right? It's, and this is going on like every day. I'm like flying up to Kabul and then like I come back, you know, I do some planning with 82nd, then I come back to the mission planning cell and, and, uh, update all the Air Force guys. That was not the smoothest process ever. Um, this is easier for me to plan with the Army guys than it was the Air Force guys. We, we had like 20 jets involved in this, right? We had a huge fighter presence overhead. Um, we had a lot of uh, of unmanned, you know, ISR in the area, of course, which was the thing that I cared most about was ISR. Um, but you just never knew. So it was, it was uh, an impressive stack. We don't get a chance to put that into play very often, too. But um, 20 aircraft. And have we, I think we even had well, the Navy got involved, maybe with a couple of F-18s, you know, based on uh, the longevity of the mission, holding times and not having tankers available, you know, for everybody. So it wasn't a ton of time in the air um, for the fighter community. But F-15s, F-16s, UAVs, um, AC-130s, it was awesome. It was awesome final mission for everybody. Um, I meant to, who was controlling the airfield? Was this a tactical air control? Yeah, at that, that point. So, yeah, prior to that, it was the CRW, Air Force CRW, Contingency Response Wing. Hang on just a sec. Yeah, so uh, the, the airfield up until the final mission was being run by the CRW, Contingency Response Wing. That's sort of their job. You know, they, they, they got folks who control towers, that kind of thing. Um, but for the final mission, we brought the CRW out and we left it in the hands of, yeah, JTAC. You know, special Air Force special ops guys who do that. They run the airfield essentially from the ground and they're the last people to leave. Um, we work with those guys a lot. So really, really good working relationship. And, you know, the, the JTE, we practice it enough as well that um, a relatively smooth operator. I mean, nothing's perfect. Nothing's perfect. But we knew our business. Um, 
it worked really, really well. That type of planning worked really well. I mean, and the planning is like very, very intense planning. It's uh, the level of detail we put in there is amazing. Um, and obviously that's that's so that it, that it'll go off as well as it did. We had a lot of worries, uh, worries, concerns going in there. Some of the challenges were Kabul sits in a bowl. Uh, surrounded by mountains on three sides. There's really only one way in and one way out. You can take off on the opposite runway, but it's such a steep climb that it really limits how much weight you can put on a C-17. So we were we were mostly confined to one way in, one way out. So we were concerned a little bit with the weather. Uh, another reason I had extra C-17s on standby in case you know the wind shift and we can't take off the way we want. Bring in some other C-17s to help carry the load. Um, yeah, and then and then uh, did those other C seventeen no. land, or did you have them? Yeah, I just had them. I just had them holding it in a stack on standby. So one had a CCAT team on it, the medical team. You know, in case something really bad happened, fly the medical team, evac people that way. Um, one of them had a, a whole bunch of spare parts in it, uh, a risk kit we call it. So just a ton of C seventeen spare parts, like our maintenance jet, with some maintenance folks on board. And then the third one was just completely empty. So basically, I could add a little menu to choose from based on what I needed. My and my job as the as the air mission commander was was sort of to to run all that. I did. I mean, obviously, I did a lot delegate. Like I am, I got a. There's an AWACS controlling actually the sky. The sky stack is being run by an AWACS, of course, as it should be. And so uh, I I rarely even got on that frequency. So they're monitoring me. We worked this out ahead of time, and we had we had set some conditions with uh, with the fighters like. This is all I care about. Here's the airspace I need. I need all this maneuvering space over here. I'm not going to go above this altitude. So just as long as you guys don't go below this altitude, I think we'll have no. Yeah. Do whatever you want up there. Do whatever you want. Whatever you feel like you need to do. As long as you don't impede the mission. But one of the challenges we had um, in the planning phase, it, man, it was unfortunate with the Air Force. Like the Army, the Army gets it. Um, you heard the term, you know, some people, some of the listeners may have heard supporting forces versus supported forces. So the supported force in this case was the army. Right? We are eva- we are getting them out. So it's based on how do we how do we collapse this airfield? They are the supported. C-17s are supported. However, when it came to the air picture, the C-17s were the supported force. Everybody else existed so that the C-17s could get in and out of their safety. So we had, you know, part of the fighter uh, job was it is an international airport. It is international airspace. Theoretically, some other aircraft could have entered the airspace. And so they're going to do an intercept mission to get them out. That's Basically, it's like we are keeping this airspace clear for the C-17s. And then we had eyes on everything. Like what I, what I, we've worked with a lot. And if I have one aircraft overhead in addition, I would have chosen an AC-130 gunship. They have uh, an awesome ability to see a lot of things. They have great, you know, um, cameras that can look everywhere. And they've got a variety of uh, munitions, you know, to to help us out if, um, you know, if ISIS decided to, to make a one last stand or if the Taliban, we felt pretty good that the Taliban commanders were going to support us. But I don't know about the rest of the forces, if somebody was going to try some sort of parting shot. And so we were watching them pretty closely as well. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, when you get, you know, two different army organizations plus C-17s plus 
things like AC-130s plus UAVs plus fighters, then that's a lot of people in one room, one planning room. And you can challenge that difficult stuff we have. Yeah. At, one, at one point, Just, yeah, the, the, there's a lack of understanding, I think, in the Air Force about how these operations work. So I think the Air Force thinks a lot of the terms of JFE, Joint Forcible Entry, like we're going to go in and dominate the airspace. This is an Air Force mission. Nobody can come in until the Air Force right. does its job. Well, this is the opposite of that. We already own all the airspace. That's a good point. So we need to, we're, we're doing the, the exact opposite. And we had a really hard time getting through that. At one point, somebody in the room, a major uh, F-15 guy, suggested that the AWACS be the Air Mission Commander. And it was such an inane comment that I just ignored it. I was like, I can't, man, I don't. I do not even have the time to engage in how dumb that comment is. For your listeners, here's why I'll say this is the thing. Here's why I'm the Air Mission Commander. Uh, how many people can a C-17 hold on board? How much do you weigh? I have no idea. Right? How, what type of aircraft performance? What if a C-17 breaks? How long can you hold for? You know, this uh, in, in, a, in a JFE, we set the timing. This is what time we're going to get in there. We all know what time the time is. In a JTE, it's the opposite. My job as C-17 guys to show up. And I'm going to get called in. And I'm going to get called in maybe one at a time. And so I'm going to get asked by the JTAC. They state your e earliest ETA, latest ETA, max hold times. I mean, we're doing like math in the cockpit to like work this out amongst the fighters. Right. There is no scenario where a non-C-17 person is the air mission commander in this type of operation. But just that that understanding didn't exist. I mean, it's a pretty rare operation, so we you know we'll practice a lot with that. Well, I was saying you know probably the only time um, you know, like a red flag when you mix in a C seventeen and a red flag, it's usually hey they they got some airdrop mission that's going to be happening concurrently, yeah, but the main mission, the main objective for this is something else. So it is that mindset, but. You know, inherently, I agree with you. Like the Air Force, just in general, has a problem uh, understanding it from like the basic, you know, from basic finance and com and things like that. Like who's supporting, who's supported, what's the prior mission set? I think, you know, being a Block Fifty Seed guy while Weasel Mission and doing escort, like realize like, all right, yeah, you might be in a pointy nose jet, but you're there so other people can do the right. mission and get to the objective right like you're supporting whatever that might be right and so that, yeah that makes more sense to me after your mission set too but it's you know it'd be hard to be uh an air to air you know or just a transition from from a jfe which we practice often enough to a jte which we practice never with, you yeah. know with that. i mean i, I, I practice it. jtes all the time because it's that's really an army-led thing we're familiar with it c-130s are very familiar with it um but yeah, so it just—I mean, not a not a huge deal. Just it was just a headache for me to walk into the MPC every day and be like, ah, <laughs> you know, the first time I sat down and they're like, "All right, here's your times, here's your entry and exit times," and I freaking tore that piece of paper up and I said, "Guys, it's not how this is. No, that's not how this works. Here's what's going to happen. I have this airspace. I'm going to show up at this time because that's when I said I'm going to be there, and then I'm going to wait as long as it takes for them because it, you know, the word go actually happens from the ground up, right? There, you imagine." this enormous checklist they're running on the ground. They're not gonna collapse things one at a time. It's not like, okay, that tower's ready to go. 
they can go. It's everybody all at once. And so everybody is doing their part of this mission on the ground and there's going to be delays. And the thing that, that scares us the most is leaving somebody behind. We got hundreds of army guys. It's pitch black night. Everybody's on night vision goggles. It is accountability is a, is, is one of the most significant thing. We actually practice it. We even practice this account, the loading and accountability process before. We practiced this in Kabul. We sent a C-17 up to Kabul. It obviously didn't tell everybody, kind of put it over in a hangar so nobody could see what was going on. And then we practiced loading it. You know, we just used one C-17 to sort of mimic the five. That's how important like that role is. And so um, that's what's going on on the ground in the Army. It's, it is a complicated thing to make sure that everybody's go. And then when they say go, it is the C-17s are like bam, 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 all five, like landing, like immediately going to your spots, keeping the engines running, loading them all up, you know, and then doing our thing and then and then dealing with whatever contingencies arise. Um, we left we left a cell phone behind. Just cell phone. In case somebody got left behind. No kidding. That's something as simple as that. And I go like two, you're saying like accountability. I mean, it's probably down to like lining up and you know, platoon leaders going through, making sure all their guys right. and doing it. That's right. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know exactly how they all do it, but I, I watch them do it enough, and I'm just waiting for the call from from the one guy. And then, it, um, and then, and my job as Air Mission Commander too is, you know, I'm running the, the air picture, and I'm communicating directly with the GFC, the Ground Force Commander, so General Donnie. So him and I, I talked many times in the plan leading up to it. As a matter of fact, uh, we had we did have some contingencies going in there. The JT while I was en route to Kabul. Um, the only time I've ever taken a phone call on a C-17, you know, we we outfit it with some roll-on, roll-off communications equipment for these types of missions. And I'm in the, up in the cockpit, and uh, one of the Army guys comes up to me. He's like, hey, hey, sir, <laughs> General Donahue needs to talk to you. So I go downstairs, and I literally pick up a telephone, you know, a, a zipper phone. And it's General Donahue on the other side. And a couple of things he wanted to just just tweak a couple of things with the mission, which end, end up not being a big deal. We were totally able to support, which is cool. But but that's it. And then we land, and I'm in direct comms with JTAC, and who's got the, the GFC right with them. And then the GFC is on on board my aircraft. And as soon as he gets on board, you know they tear down their comms. Now the only comms that exist on the airfield are through me to each each C-17, and I have General Donahue standing right next to me, sort of giving the word go right. Um, and and sort of the the orchestrated version of this is uh, just like all the army guys wait until everybody's ready to go to hit go, and then they get they do their thing. Same thing with the C-17s. Somebody you know, C-17 number two is full and ready to go. Doesn't matter. They sit there with their doors and ramps open, still waiting for the go call for me, in case for some reason we need to rapidly redeploy the force. Right? We don't want. Something happens, the enemy comes over the fence, you know, goes kinetic. We don't want to have to wait to open doors to get the army out. They stay ready to fight until we get airborne. And so it's, and this is a, this call I'm waiting for from him. So the, the unique radio calls I got to make there was a uh, clamshell. That's our, that's our code word for C-17s. I'll close up. I give that. And then, you know, if you're looking at a God's eye view, once I give the clamshell clear to taxi, Again, it's orchestrated. We know who one is, two, three, four, five, and we're all coming from different parts of the airfield. We all convene together in this nice little dance lineup and then go take off. And then, yeah, at one point, um, we got word from one of the ISR assets 
that there were Taliban inside the perimeter. And it's true, there were. We, we couldn't see them. We couldn't get a guy's on them. They told us about where they were. So I called up C-17 number one. Um, awesome, awesome pilot, weapons officer. She, she, I called her up and said, hey, I need you to, can you see anything? They're apparently close to you. She said it, she couldn't. So I asked, I had her take the runway, which basically made her do a 180 so she could do a big scan. And she located them. There's about 10 Taliban guys. And they weren't doing anything wrong. They just were standing there watching watching our operation like in progress, you know, which is a little disconcerting, but looked like they weren't gonna do anything. So we we then uh we then go to leave. Um and I'm I'm jet number five, the last one. And I remember taxiing by these guys and all their white robes and they're waving at us as we're leaving. But you could just just sense it, just like knew this wasn't like a friendly see you later wave. If they knew what the middle finger was, that's what they were doing. You know, they were saying, so long. We win. Get out of here. Yeah, that's right. BFY. Yeah, I just felt that watching those guys, man. That's eerie. I'm, I'm envisioning as this, the army, you know, they're hitting their trigger points and their signals and they're falling back. I mean, they, it's, they had the perimeter secured, right? Now they evacuate the towers, they evacuate the checkpoints, yada, yada. They're falling back. But the Taliban's just right outside. They are, yeah. There's no way. I mean, there's there's um, key moments in this when you do something like this, certainly where there's going to be um, moments of vulnerability. You know what I mean? Still C-17s, still Army guys. We're still taking off. I mean, uh, how, how long were you guys on the ground, can you say? I can't say. Yeah. The, um, did you practice this? Cause I'm even thinking it's something that's basically like walking through, if you're going to different parts of the airfield, whether it's like on a magnetic board with little toy C-17s or you're walking through, but it's something you take for granted tax, you know, having taxi lights, having a lit airfield. And if you're doing this at night, knowing, I mean, is it just, Hey, we're going to brief it. Or are you going to walk it out? Or are you going to, no, gonna- we do, we practice, we rehearse it. It gets rehearsed. Um, very, very in detail planning by all of us. Uh, the pilots do before we take off. Um, this is really important when you're when you have um, dissimilar aircraft too. You have, you know, we, we do a lot of stuff with C one thirties, C one thirty fives. They do like a what if drill. We sit down. The pilots all sit down together. What if this happens? What if this happens? What if this? And you're going to cover everything. But you're going to cover a lot of stuff. And then if something else happens that you haven't covered, you probably covered something like it. So it's just a way to build contingency plans, essentially. So without getting into, like, too much of the detail of the classified stuff we do, I'll just say it's very, very well rehearsed, including how to taxi, where to park with no lights and that kind of stuff. There's some, you know, crafty little tools that we've all developed over the years that make it pretty effective. But um, to the point where that, that stuff kind of becomes pretty routine. But, it is, yeah, it is unique. Like, you know, it's, this is even like a, you know, dealing with the special operations stuff. This is normal stuff. Landing an airfield when it's dark and this could be anywhere in the world. And you're, you're always like, is that our parking spot? Is this where we go? Is that the yeah. right taxiway? Like, are we in the, are in the right spot? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that's an issue. But the way the way that we practice it is funny is we walk it as if you're in an airplane. Like, you'll walk it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like a chair flying well, back and say, trading, like you Like, you walk a, a pattern and you know, we do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, tape it on the ground. And that's why I was kind of getting at is like 
for those listening, just this is a super complex mission that you're doing, but it's even the basic stuff that you take for granted, like being able to see with a, having your taxi light on or having the lights on in the cockpit and be able to see like that. You can't do that here. Yeah. Um, and you know, apples and oranges here. Right. But doing demo and you'd fly a heritage flight with a Mustang or a P 47, you would no kidding. Even though you've did, you, you did this a thousand times, you and the other pilot beforehand would usually stand outside and you would walk around doing position changes and things like that, just to kind of get, exactly. get your mind right. Yeah. You know, so that matters. That's, that's, that's talk- the practice, the rehearsing stuff, man. I don't care what you're doing, flying or not flying any, any job that, uh, man, sports teams do it all the time. Tiger Woods had a swing coach. You know what I mean? Like the yeah. practice never ends. Yeah. Yep. Super Doesn't matter where you are. Yeah. You did say earlier on you had an anecdotal story for August 31st. You want to share that? Yeah, the, the final mission. Yeah, just it was yeah. this part. It was about the Taliban. You know, they're waving to oh. us. Mo- just moments that I'll never forget. Mo- this this probably five minute stretch like I'll never forget. Okay, pictured in, in my mind right now. I'm the fifth jet, so we're we're taxing out, and we we take off on real short interval takeoffs, um, and. Taxed by the Taliban guys waving at us, which is weird. And then I take the runway and I realize in the moment that this is it. Like Afghanistan's like over, you know, I relieve it. Like I, I graduated Academy in 2001. Uh, 9-11 happened three months later. And, you know, my, my entire career, like all of us, entire career was, was spent over there. And like, this is it. Like I really, it was really cool to realize again like in the moment, like this is the last jet to leave, to leave Afghanistan. And so I, I take the runway and, and on my vision goggles, as soon as we start rolling, I just have this picture. I can see everything. I can see all five jets. The Taliban's behind us now. And jet number one has, uh, it's a takeoff and an immediate left turn. And I see number one is, has made the left turn. Two is in the left turn. Three is just lifted off. Four is at the end of the runway about to take off, and I'm five. I just see our entire train of C-17s leaving, like that image right there, like frozen in time forever for me. And then uh, and then the final final radio call, um, we had a we had a point of no return essentially built into the plan, right? Um, every aircraft was going to hit this point, and if they didn't hear from me proceed, they actually were going to make another left turn and head back to the airfield. Because of the terrain, once you pass that point, it was going to be really tough. Okay, let's say jet number four has to reject the takeoff for some reason, gets trapped on the runway, maintenance or or you know, worse. Um, and and for some reason, we need to redeploy the force. Well, I need I need the shooters that are on the other jets in, in front of there. So every everybody's actually takeoff plan was I'm going to take off and I'm going right back to the runway unless right. Very different from like. I'm not going back unless, like it was, I am going back to the runway unless I'm told we're wrong. Yep. So once I got airborne, told everybody to proceed. And then as soon as I hit that point, I made a radio call. Um, the, the call was, the, was just math safe, math safe. I'm, I pushed this out over all nets, over all nets. So everybody hears it like that's it. Math for mobility air forces, math safe was the, the code word for like, that's it. And uh, and I heard later that there was a lot of people I, I talked to, uh, SecDef, Secretary Austin, and he said that he was watching, and he heard that way. He said, this is what he told me. He said, I was watching you guys leave, and I was on the phone with the president when I heard you make that. So that's pretty, that was pretty awesome. 
Jeez. That's wild. Here's a question, pilot question. If a C-17, could you have taken it off three engines? Like if you lost a motor on the field? Yes, but not without us to get no cargo, essentially, no weight. Okay. So we actually flew that scenario in a sim back home. I was forward at IUD, but we had some people back at Charleston get in a simulator and take off from Kabul in the sim three engines. What's it going to take? You know, what are the what are the weather factors that would allow us to do it? And how much weight can you have on board? And we essentially figured out no weight, no weight at all. And with gas too. I mean, taking off with min fuel, taking off with min fuel, right? Min fuel to us means you got to land immediately. Like you don't have time to do anything else. You got to land. We're taking off with min fuel, so it also meant hitting a tanker. Like it was going to be really difficult that happened. Almost, I think that would have been a real time decision for me to abandon the C seventeen or to see or to go see if we could do it. So maybe we either hit a tanker. I mean, none of us have ever air refueled with three engines, but. You know, I trust I trust in our abilities, our pilots' abilities to do stuff like that. Or maybe we just go land a pack scan. Take off and hit pack scan right away, you know? Or an emergency. Yeah. And go land there. So we, we did have some contingency planning. I think uh, my sense is the leadership would have preferred us to leave the C-17 behind. Yeah, drop a bomb on it or something. Have, yeah. Nothing would have been worse, though, politically, the Taliban posing in front of a C-17. The C-17 just screams America. Yep. So thankfully that didn't happen. Um, I did. I did have. I've told this story a couple times now, and now that I'm retired, I'll I'll tell everybody. Day before, day before the mission, we're done planning, man. We're done. We do our final briefs. Like you, you know how these big operations go. There's one massive crew brief. That was a really cool moment. Is in a big theater. It's in a theater, the ops group commanders theater, and I walk. All my crews are in there. It's packed. And I walk out on stage for the briefing and I just like have this moment. I felt like I was watching a World War II movie, you know, when all the bomber pilots get ready to take off from England. And it was really cool. As we're doing that, we're about to take off and go fly to a different country. And, and, uh, yeah, it was a neat moment. And we, so we do the briefing and then each aircraft, each crew breaks up into their own, do their own individual jet briefs, very normal stuff for all of us. And, you know, it's now it's go to bed. Now it's like in those moments of like go to bed. So um, I go back, after everybody's gone, I go back in to check email, check CipperNet, my Cipher email one more time. And I have an email from the AMC commander, four-star general, not directly to me. She sent it to somebody, that somebody sent it to me. And it was expressing her or their discomfort with the plan that was to be executed for. Specifically with what we had decided on as the min force. The min force is a big deal. The minimum force required to begin the operation. And so you want your minimum force to be as small as possible. The larger your min force is, the harder it is to get off the ground, right? More is likely to go wrong, especially when you deal with airplanes. And so we, even though I had those three extra C-17s, we decided, the GFC released that, Matron O'Donnell. Kismet, that the min force obviously recommendation the min force is going to be five c-17s we can accomplish this mission with five c-17s everything else is bonus we want eight but we only need five 
And of course, the risk is if you declare them in force of being eight, that one of them breaks and now the whole mission is scrapped, right? We don't, the entire mission is scrapped before it starts. This is a significant call. I yep. get this email from Four Star saying she wants the men force to be seven. She said she was like willing to forego the, the MPC 17, but she wanted the maintenance risk kits and the CPAP and the medical to go with her. And, you know, fine, we can have that conversation, but not right now. Where were you two days ago when we're in the throes of planning for this operation? Not to mention the fact that you're 6,000 miles away. And I, I am thinking about this and I'm like, you're not even in the chain of command. You're supporting force, right? You, you're, your her job, your job is to provide assets. Provide assets. Also, this is a term that, that, that I love is a gickle, right? Good idea. Cutoff line. And yeah, yeah. any of these large planning exercise, there's always a gickle I, and it could be the best idea in the world, but the, it was two days ago. We're past the gickle. Not, not happening. Yeah. This is crazy. That's I was mad about it too. And I'm thinking like, all right, all the things that I got to do now, I got to call General Donahue. Probably sleeping already, you know? <laughs> Shit's going down tomorrow. He probably wasn't sleeping. Anything, but... I'm like, this is like a big change, man. I got to like, like the tree. Like I'm going to be here for hours. And then also, the CFAC I like, is, I mean, the CFAC owns this, right? You know, not really. That was another problem I had was, where was the CFAC? It's crazy. Because I mean, not involved. Who's in charge? Lines but, of authority. In, theor in, th in theory, though, right? I mean, the way it should be, the CFAC owns the air air assets, right? Yeah, yeah. Except in the case of C seventeens, man, there's some weird stuff going on. Yeah, okay. Like we don't we don't chop or cut to them, but we're sort of owned by the army. Not really. We're owned by Transcom. Here's like the real thing. Here's why the CFAC doesn't own C-17s because Transcom will never, never gives up authority, never chops the call it. Okay. Transfer of authority over there. So, so it's really Transcom that owns C-17s, but nobody from Transcom was involved in any of this planning. I never talked to him. Very much. I never talked to the CFAC okay. one time. He popped on for the final briefing, never asked a question about C-17s. C-17s, as a matter of fact, in the final briefing, in the final airflow briefing, this is also not a joke. In the final airflow briefing, earlier that day before I briefed all my crew, I took just, it's a packed room. 20 airplanes, a lot of people. Every colonel with wings at LUD is in this meeting, of course. Naturally. Naturally. And I walk in, so I brought all my aircraft command. I brought the eight aircraft commanders. I couldn't, there wasn't room for all the crews, but I wanted them in there for the briefing. You know, so, so, go down. so I walk in, the, and the MPC chief is a, a major in F-15 guy, super good dude. Him and I have been working together, obviously, pretty closely. And he's sitting at the head of the table, and I'm like, sitting right next to him. I'm a C-17. I'm the air mission commander. I'm the air mission commander for this operation. Like, I don't, there isn't like a title higher than mine. And I walk in and this colonel, and I grab my seat and this colonel goes, I'm, do you need to be sitting here? And I was like, wow. <laughs> I was like, hey, man, I'm just here to answer questions. And so like, he lets me sit. Lets me sit there. Oh, it's unbelievable. I feel like, you know, if I wasn't so like mission, I was like super mission focused too. So I was like very easily able to shed all this, all the BS. Like, I did not care. I didn't care about this guy. You know, I care about the major telling me that the that the Air Mike Charlie should be an AWACS guy. I'm like, you guys don't know anything. I know what's going on. Leave me alone. Let me let me go execute my mission. Yeah, I'm in mission mindset. As a matter of fact, like of the people in this room, I'm the only person actually going flying. So I really don't care about any of you. You know. But then I sit through this briefing. It's an hour long briefing, and this isn't not exaggerating. The word C17 did not come up one time. 
Not one time. How is that even? Not one time. What? How is that even possible? Because I, I don't really know. See. It was because it was because we were really. I'll get if if I'm gonna like cut any slack to that group. It was my plan was tight with the army. We knew it was happening. We we almost had a separate NPC for the actual mission, and this was very much about the airflow and the stack and the deconfliction confliction and stuff like that. And there was a lot of hype. People were excited about going to execute a big mission like this. And I just didn't care. Once we had once we had established the deconfliction line in the sky, like, I just didn't care. Yeah, that actually came yeah, up one time. Some guy that. was yeah, one one guy who did appreciate my job was asking me a bunch of questions, and I was like, I just got back. It's like a super long day, and I was like, man, can I be honest with you? And the, the NPC chief of team guy's like, you don't care about this at all, do you? I'm like, no. like, I trust you guys. Like, let's delegate, you know, some lines amongst us. Like, I'm gonna communicate with AWACS. Here's the radio frequency I'm going to be on. You guys know how to get a hold of me. Like, you guys keep this airspace. My brain can't handle everything. Like, here's what I can control. And then after that, I need to be asking questions like real time. And so it was great. That's how it should be, I think. Like, I'm not, yeah. I know no misunderstandings that in my role as the air mission commander that I was going to be running the entire air picture. I do not have the brainwaves for that. I'm so focused on what's happening on the ground where the danger is, you know, where the mission yeah. is, if you ask me. That, I, that it was easy for me to like shed that stuff. So I wasn't even offended when I was in there. I wasn't offended by the fact that we didn't talk C-17 this meeting. It's just an interesting note to me that like all the C-17s kind of like laugh about. Like, like nothing. Maybe the whole NPC briefly. I can completely see it though too. You know, it's like, I mean, everything we've always done, right? It's like pushing across the line and this is how we're fighting. It's not the, like you mentioned before, it's not the reverse order of like, we're leading. Like we never leave anywhere and yeah. like we always leave a presence. That's right. That's right. It's you know, so no one knows, like, oh yeah. I mean yeah. now, but yeah. Well, let me let me close the loop on the on the four star thing. So how I how I go with this. This is my favorite, uh, one of my most proud moments of this entire mission. So we did the NBC brief. We don't talk about C seventeen. And then I go brief all my crews like it's World War Two theater, like I love it. We're all hyped. We all go eat. Like, is it? It's over. Everybody's like in bed or everybody's like everybody's in pregame focus. If you've ever been an athlete, you're now in this mode, like the big game is tomorrow, and everybody deals with it however they deal with it. And so I get this email and I sit there and thinking about how much work it's gonna be, how long I'm gonna be in this building, and then I just then I realize like she's not even in the chain of command and she's wrong. Four stars wrong. So I just removed my zipper token and closed my laptop and walked away. <laughs> and I never told a single person about that email. until later, That's until awesome. I got home. Until I got home. Yeah, it's over. Yeah, I still awesome. have that email. Saved it. Made sure I saved it. So yeah, good. Yeah, like the, the uh, this is nonsense. You know, I love it. And it obviously never came. We we got off the ground with all AT seventeen, so it never became an issue. But I almost wish it did. I almost wish it did become an issue. <laughs> Why do you guys only take off with six? So you didn't meet Min Force, and then I'd be like, well, I I decided. Yeah, we're gonna do that. That was really good. And then I went back. And went back, and probably the last little story I have back to the pregame. Tomorrow's a, tomorrow's a big game. Tomorrow's like the Super Bowl, right? Like you're nervous. Everybody thinking about it. When you start, if you're like me, like I start second guessing everything. Can we think of everything? What about this? What about this? Run through it all. And eventually you just got to be like, the plan is the plan at this point. Even if we forgot something, the plan is the plan. We were good. I trust everybody. I need to, I need to uh, escape from this. Coincidentally, August 30th, 29th, maybe I forget. Uh, The NFL season's about to start. 
the last thing that I did before I went to bed, like my last bit of preparation for this mission, I did a fantasy football game. <laughs> Using the Wi-Fi on my phone with a bunch of buddies back home who had no idea what I was doing. Right? They had no idea. Bunch of Air Force guys. And I remember them, you know, a couple of days later, after the mission, um, they found out that, you know, what my role was. And they were like, wait a minute. Dude, weren't, dude, weren't we doing a fantasy football draft? Like, you were doing a fantasy football draft, like, right before the mission. And I was like, yeah, this was like, this was like therapy. For a little bit of great news. The Wi-Fi sucked, though, and I had a terrible draft. It was awful. I'm pretty sure I finished. Yeah, I know yeah, I, 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 I did. I finished dead last in that week. That year, man, I was winning. <laughs> the, the, the sacrifices we make for America, you know. You know, these things, these things we do. <laughs> AP, I, I mean, a powerful story for me. I learned uh, a lot listening to that. Incredible time to be involved. And then, you know, kind of the, as you mentioned, I know you did a few other things because you just retired, you know, since then. But, again, your entire career more or less spent in and around like most dealing with contingency operations across the globe, but then to be the last one flying out of Afghanistan, kind of surreal. Yeah. It was surreal for me too. It's fun thing to be a part of though. Right. It's what we, um, it was awesome to be able to put into execution what we practice all. Very fortunate, very fortunate Absolutely. to be, I tell everybody else, man, right place, right time. You know, not yeah, right even, place, right time, yeah. right qualifications. Yeah. Yeah. Right place, right time. I got, I got two things fire across the bow here. Uh, and then if you're willing to hang around for a there, I was story, I would appreciate it, but man, we, we've hit a lot. I want to appreciate your, or respect your time, but two, two questions, party shots. One, where can people find you? What are you doing today? So if they're trying to seek you out and then two, if you found 15, 16 year old AP walking down the street, is there any advice you would give him? Yeah. Uh, I'll answer that first one or the second question first. Um, uh, my my advice to my younger self um, would be actually not to change anything. Like it's been, I have no regrets about the past. Has not been perfect by far. Uh, not none of life is, but um, my family's amazing. I live in a great place. Great, great time of my life. Uh, married to my best friend. Have two amazing kids who are in high school, and I would not change anything to to be able to have what I have today. And I think uh, the journey and all the stumbling along the way um, probably pretty critical to winding up to where we are now. So we're we're a very happy, content family living in Charleston. I wouldn't change any of that. So that's what I tell myself is, uh, is hey, buckle up. It's, it's going to be a fun ride. It's going to be a fun ride. Um, Love it. What I'm doing now, so just retiring, uh, started working for a leadership consulting firm called Victory Strategies which is uh, made up of some pretty elite people. Um, I often question what I'm doing on this team. I mean, we're talking about a couple retired four-star generals, of fighter pilots um, with some amazing stories themselves. Uh, a lot of DFCs actually in this group of people that I'm a part of. Uh, our CEO is a Navy SEAL. We've got um, Fortune 500 executives, Olympic athletes are part of this team. It's not a very big team. So we do a lot of um, leadership coaching and speaking as well. And I'm just getting into the um, professional speaking, talking about this, sort of the lessons learned from the battlefield in Afghanistan, uh, learning how to lead and thrive in chaos. 
So um, best place to find me is on LinkedIn. And then uh, that, there's a connection through LinkedIn to all the stuff that I'm doing. Appreciate you asking. Yeah, perfect. I'll link uh, that stuff down below in the description for those who listen. But AP, I appreciate you joining me on the podcast. It was an honor to be able to talk to you and, and just great hearing some of the stuff uh, that, you know, is not necessarily well known. And I know people are going to enjoy learning a little bit more. We're rolling up on the second uh, anniversary of the withdrawal for Afghanistan. So crazy stuff. Thanks for appreciate joining me. Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarren.com slash rain.